The views and opinions expressed by contributors on the Spoon River Gothic podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the position of the host. Material heard on the Spoon River Gothic podcast is intended for adult listeners. This podcast deals with mature topics that may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide. Tragedy tends to take form under the guise of the mundane, normalcy that accompanies the repetition of days. The very cycles we have come to depend upon, to repeat unscathed, patterns unbroken, a mundanity of blind faith that accompanies the rising sun. A system all too often taken for granted, as for some, even as the sun has appeared to have ascended in that same old way their brilliant light that chases away the night fails to return at all. Donna Tompkins had wrapped up her workday, preparing to leave before her boss did, Trust Officer David Haynes, as she always had. You see, at the National Bank of Canton, Donna was paid by the hour, whereas David liked to stay for a while and finish up some work while the phone couldn't ring. So at five, Donna would have waved David goodbye and left her boss to his task at hand. Next, Donna stopped by the Elks Club, just a couple blocks away, where she had picked up shifts as a waitress for some, and Donna lit up a much-desired cigarette, a habit she had kept hidden from her family, co-workers at the bank. In particular, it was common for Donna to stop in for a couple beers after work, another guilty pleasure kept under the hush from the higher-ups who often themselves came into the Elks Club to play cards for an hour or two. As Donna stepped out of her car, wearing a short leather jacket, blue flowered skirt and top, black heels, leather clutch in hand, it was beginning to snow, as Donna was not one to wear heavy clothes even in the dead of winter. 
Donna chatted with fraternal member of the Benevolent and Protective Order of the Elks and tavern regular Clarence Sprecher and bartender Linda Pig. Donna had begun tending bar on Sunday afternoons a few weeks back, and socializing came natural to her. She loved people, after all, and people loved the warm smile that made them feel right at home. She had had a lot on her mind lately, especially with the long, drawn-out divorce dragging on. Donna felt at the Elks she could set free that inner person in a way she could not at the bank. At the Elks she could open up, be herself, crack the window to her soul. Let the world see a woman who liked to loosen up a bit, even going so far as to complain about the weirdos and spooks at the bank. Creeps who were constantly hounding her for a date, passing love letters, demanding a hug here and there, and what have you, most likely all too often, and all the above. But these confessions of love did not only come Donna's way at the bank, but also at the Elks. It turns out Donna's part-time boss, Terry Haynes, whom she had dated for a couple months, and whom had offered her the job at the club, had given her such a letter just a few days back. Donna even showed Linda the evidence of how Terry was pleading with her to take him back. But ever since the two broke up after a heated argument and discovering Terry was deep into drugs, Donna was more than a bit afraid of Terry and was quoted as saying she was scared to death of him and even avoided him. You see, Donna had also heard that Terry had beaten his ex-wife severely and spent time in rehab. And after the relationship ended between Terry and Donna, it was said that Terry had been bad-mouthing her behind her back. And he was certainly keeping track of her, driving by her house at odd hours, and even going so far as to call her at her current boyfriend's house, whispering over the phone the likes of, I know where you are. I've been waiting for you. And you'll realize how much you love me. God will tell you, you belong to me. The last time Terry called Donna, the previous Saturday, Terry had said his ex was going back with her boyfriend, and that he still loved Donna. And rumors were swirling around the Elks that Terry had become a real problem, as he was thought to be stealing hundreds of dollars from the club. Donna by now had grown to not trust a word Terry said, and knew he was lying. After all, she had just seen Terry and his ex-wife together, and she knew they were back to living together. And as much as Terry begged, Donna was done. And she told him as much, with as much finesse as she could muster, knowing he had tried to kill himself only a couple weeks prior, running a hose from the tailpipe of his car to his house. But while working together at the Elks, the two managed to maintain a friendly discourse necessary to get their jobs done, and Donna continued to feel right at home within the brick walls of the one-story building just to block off the town's historic square. Donna opened up to Linda about her ongoing divorce from her husband, John. She was also afraid of him, seeing that he had one of the worst tempers she had ever seen, demanding she was not going to live like that. Donna had gone to Connecticut to visit her family over Christmas and planned to stay for two weeks. She had been looking forward to the trip, seeing her family and her beloved father. But Donna told Linda that John had called her and essentially made her come back early. Something to do with taxes and the divorce. And Donna went on to complain to Linda that John messed it all up and that he was refusing to pay child support. Donna whispered a secret in Linda's ear. She'd been sneaking her pay into a personal account she had opened. One she had opened separate from hers and John's, just in case of emergency. But tell no one, she said, 
God forbid John finds out. And picking up those extra shifts on Sunday, tending bar in the afternoons, it had helped a lot. And seeing they were on the weekend, bingo usually over by five, and everyone out of the club by seven, the extra work shouldn't have interfered with her regular shifts at the bank. Even after all the patrons left and the doors were locked, Donna would pull up to the bar and have a drink with the others. She would still make it home early enough to get some rest before returning to the otherwise button-up establishment early Monday morning. But you see, that was the problem, according to the higher-ups who caught wind that Donna had been bartending at the Elks. It was simply not a good idea, they said. It might interfere with her work performance. But still, mostly, it might tarnish a pristine image the pillar of the community had long cultivated in the otherwise conservative town of Canton, Illinois. As Donna leaned on the bar, taking a puff on her cigarette, she momentarily took a load off as she exhaled top button, finally free. But when Linda offered Donna another Miller Lite, saying it was on the house, it's on me, Donna told her, no thanks, I'm in a hurry. I have something to do, I have somewhere to be. So at around 5.30 p.m., Donna ventured back out into the approaching storm and drove to pick up her daughter at the YMCA daycare. But not before throwing down a few bucks on the bar for a pack of Marlboro Lights. Sorry, hon, we're all out. Salem Lights will do? Donna seemed in good spirits, and Linda remembered, reminding her about the birthday party that they had planned for her. Donna was to turn 31 in only 10 days, January 22, 1993. Picking up her three-year-old Justine at daycare, Donna had a quick chat with Sally Gregory, who mentioned that Justine had been quite temperamental lately, and overly tired as she tried to smooth down the hair on the child's head that stubbornly stood upright, even in the gathering breeze. And Donna strapped Justine into her car seat. She'd make an appointment, she said, see what the matter might be. And the two headed home before the temperature dropped. The two had recently moved into the one-bedroom apartment at 365 South First Avenue, a two-story Victorian snuggled behind a brick walkway and a set of rusty tracks that divided the quaint neighborhood to the north and the industrial spread of old brick warehouses to the south. A block to the east, the sprawling abandoned century-old International Harvester Factory, world-renowned for its steel plows. And during the War of Nations, military hardware, more recently, refrigerators. To the west, the flatness began to gently rise and fall like deep ocean waves as Victorians reposed into the rolling terrain of the Spoon River Valley. But here, back on South First Avenue, the road ran flat and straight, north to south, south to north, right through the heart of town. As snowflakes gathered around the home, inside, the boiler heat provided comfort from the cold, and the two snuggled up on a fold-out tweed sofa bed for a catnap mother and daughter. The two woke around 7.30 p.m. and Donna ran Justine a bath. And just as the young one would have been splashing about with a rubber duckling, the phone rang. 
it was John. He had stepped away from a football game to give his daughter a call. She's in the bath, Donna told him. Call back in a bit. Donna washed Justine's hair with bubbles and suds, drained the tub, wrapped the shivering child up in a towel, and again snuggled her in bed, only this time in Justine's home, in the apartment's only bedroom. Justine was far off in the land of dreams when the phone rang at nine. John was calling from his parents' house, next door, saving money on the long-distance call, and Donna felt sure there were other reasons John was calling, and prepared herself for the conversation, making herself a stiff drink, Canadian mist and schnapps, and a dash of cider. Yet another guilty pleasure, one hidden from her husband and soon-to-be ex. If the two could just manage to get to the bottom line, agree on the terms, and finally sign those papers. After all, Donna's lawyer had long prepared them. Donna was more than ready to embark on a new life. But as eager as Donna was to lift anchor and set sail, John was more hesitant. He was landlocked in a trap of hope that their marriage might just work. In fact, he felt the sensation that since Donna had returned from Connecticut, she had seemed more upbeat and may have even wanted to get back together. But nonetheless, he brought up his concerns, as he always did. John felt that Justine looked too thin when he had seen her the previous weekend, and the tape to her Teddy Rumpskin was missing. Then the conversation quickly shifted to a concern Donna felt was most important to John, and that was money. John was concerned by the foreseen impact the divorce might have on the family farm. And it was not only John who was concerned, but his brother and father as well. Lately, John had been under a lot of pressure because he had recently been told by his father that he was henceforth going to be left out of the family business. Why, one might ask? Well, for one, John had an ugly temper. He had been getting into arguments with his brother Jay, often going berserk, not only on Jay, but his uncle George, who John had beaten so severely, Jay believed surely John would have killed him. And George had to go so far as to call the police on John after he had threatened to kill their father, Ron. A dispute had broken out as to who would care for and show the sheep. As it was supposed that John's Aunt Bonnie had caught him having sexual relations with one of the furry creatures. Now this is not an accusation or rumor to be taken lightly or tossed around willy-nilly. It is a relevancy that would be haphazard to be left out of the story. John and Donna had been trying marriage counseling. In fact, John had been going on his own and even had an appointment the following day. Because yes, John did have a temper. Once after the marriage had been rocky for quite some time, and Donna had already felt deeply that John was not there for her, she told him rightly so, suggesting they separate. John came up behind her in the bathroom. In a sweet voice, he told her she looked nice and that he wanted to go to bed with her. Donna spun around and asked, how could you say such a thing after all that we've been through? This is when John lost it. And when he went to strike her, he punched the door frame, shattering it into pieces. This was a turning point for Donna. Obviously, marriage counseling was not working. You see, for two years, Pastor Boyle had sat down with the couple and tried to unite the knots between them. But in his own words, the two were not getting their homework done and things gradually died off between the couple. But the pastor knew that Donna had recently gone on a religious retreat. So he called her up to ask if this was true and if she was considering getting back together with John. 
But she answered, no, not now, I don't know, maybe down the road. And Donna confided in Pastor Boyle that she felt John did not have sincere feelings about her faith. Though the pastor knew that both John and Donna were individuals and that both would speak up freely, he admitted that he initially took John's side, believing the accusations against Donna. This basically amounted to the idea that Donna was a distracted 90s career woman, too selfish to be a good wife. But in time, the pastor realized that maybe it was John that was disrupting the marriage. After all, John would often lie, both to Donna and the pastor. And what good would that do for the marriage, Pastor Boyle wondered. What good would it do for therapy? But the pastor couldn't help believing that John was particularly untruthful about the farm and the finances. And soon Ron Tompkins called over the pastor to the house for some counsel, as he had decided the best decision was for John to leave the farm. And later, John told the pastor about his fear he might have to go to work as a hired hand, and he was not entirely certain he would be happy with that. Once again, the pastor called Donna up on the phone and asked if there was any truth to this accusation about the sheep. Donna said that John was upset with the pastor, as John had suggested to Donna, in a rage, that the pastor himself had and this would be the last time that Pastor Boyle ever spoke with Donna Tompkins alive. Concerns. As it turns out, Donna had a handful of her own. To begin with, she felt that John only wanted to be a father when it was convenient for him. For example, when it was raining on the farm, John would show up unannounced, wanting to see his daughter. Other times, they would make arrangements and he would not show up at all, or real late. John would fume when Donna would not let Justine go out at a late hour. And Donna would make John stand on the porch, afraid to let him into the apartment, fearful of his anger and his violent tendencies. In fact, Donna only felt safe once John was gone and the door was shut and locked. Donna was in fact living on edge. A few weeks prior, John had returned Justine home late one night, when she was already exhausted and too sleepy to walk. But John not only insisted she walk, he made her carry the Christmas presents as well, even threatening to take them all back unless she gave him a smooch on the cheek. Donna's grievances with John snowballed. Amongst the growing frustration, Donna felt she was growing weary of John's constant demands for a romantic date. Donna was tired. She was tired of that edge, tired of the threats. John was always saying, you will always be my wife. She was tired of worrying about how this toxic dynamic was affecting Justine, and John had gotten to the habit of picking Justine up at the babysitter without giving Donna notice. Donna had even begun to refuse to tell John who was babysitting Justine and where. She had grown so weary and paranoid with good cause that one afternoon she took off work to take Justine to the park and instructed co-workers at the bank to inform John in case he stopped by or called, as he had grown accustomed to do, unannounced, that she was busy in the bathroom and to hang up on him or send him away. 
Another concern? The $10,000 note John had coerced Donna into signing for a new hog confinement building on the farm. Donna felt so overwhelmed and burdened. She signed away without any legal guidance under the pressure of John's temper. Was this whole farm business all a mess or was it just Donna? Or is it just me? She had done this without ever having seen any records or financial figures to look at. And it was not until after the fact that she had to subpoena them by court order. And there was distress from lawyer fees, not only her own, which were stacking up, but those imposed upon John every time he would call, every time he would harass her late at night, even in the early morning hours. Donna's attorney would in turn write John a letter insisting his behavior ceased, all while sending John a bill in the mail. And Donna feared how angry John might get. And then there was the life insurance policy. And then there was the life insurance policy John had purchased for Donna and Justine. The one that John worried about. The one that John hounded her over during those late night calls. Are you paying the premium on time? Why didn't you pay the premium on time? But John had told Donna he was starting to accept a divorce settlement of $25,000. And with Donna's spirits uplifted after her family holiday home, she decided to take things lightly and try a new approach, telling John, yes, you can take Justine to McDonald's tomorrow evening. Just call first and we can make arrangements. Somewhere to meet, but please, John, not too late. John told Donna to give Justine a hug and a kiss, and the two hung up. John then picked the phone back up and called his girlfriend, Sheila, whom he had been seeing for nearly two months. He expressed his concern that Justine might go home and tell Donna about her, and that the three had been spending weekends together. Donna lit a cigarette, poured another drink, and made her own call to her boyfriend, Rod. With a chuckle, Donna told Rod that Ren and Stimpy was on TV, a raunchy cartoon that made the couple laugh a few days earlier. She also said that John had called, and that he felt Justine look thin. She said she had done nothing but take a nap after work, stating it was nice to do nothing at all. And Rod told her that he was drinking a screwdriver in his kitchen with his brother and roommate. Donna said that a guy at the bank had expressed interest in her earlier that day. But she had heard that the man was the ex-husband of Sheila, John's secret girlfriend. Donna told Rod that she thought that was weird and that she was not interested at all. I'm Corey Zimmerman, and this is Spoon River Gothic. Spoon River Gothic is a production of Lone Bird Media in association with CZ Studio. The show is produced by August Olson, editing, directing, and producing by Corey Zimmerman. Audio mastering and engineering by E. Mastered. Research is done by Anne-Marie Cannon, Chelsea Mesa, and me, Jinra Illustrisimo. Spoon River Gothic is written and hosted by Corey Zimmerman. You can follow the show at czstudio.works and read the blog at spoonrivergothic.com. Show some love by leaving us a rating or review on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
and stay tuned for the next episode as we dive deeper into the Donald Bull case. Thank you for listening. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide.